Welcome to Active Shooter, the podcast. After decades now of mass shootings, mass shootings, mass shootings, we haven't found the answer. A tribute to the victims of two mass shootings. A tribute to the victims of two mass shootings. Thank you for listening to Active Shooter, the podcast. You are listening to Active Shooter, a podcast that may contain adult themes, explicit language, and graphic depictions of violence. Portions of this show may be traumatic for those under 18. Listener discretion is advised. When the parents divorced, things sort of went south then. Uh, She lived with the dad. The dad was a sort of very bitter man. He sort of hated the world. The mother, on the other hand, sort of became like a, a stone herself. I mean, it was like She never went out of her way to go over the kids, to have a relationship. So it was a very cold, sterile environment in both places. Welcome to part two of our episode about the Grover Cleveland Elementary School shooting. If you haven't listened to part one, please go back and listen to that episode first. We begin this episode starting with the custody battle between Jane's parents after she had filed for divorce. The custody battle for the children were very bitter, to say the least. The two eldest children wanted to go and live with their dad, while Jane wanted to stay with her mom. The judge, who didn't want to split up the family, ordered all of the children to live with their dad. I went to court and I fought for custody, you know. I love my kids, you know. I wanted to keep them. I wanted to raise them myself. Jane's mom would later say that she was broke and couldn't afford an attorney to help her fight for custody of her children. It was in the time when the court system was swaying back and forth, and uh, he got the two older ones to say that they, he, they wanted to stay with him, and then so they didn't want to split up the three. After the divorce, Jane stopped all of her extracurricular activities and quit playing sports altogether. While Jane was a misfit and unpopular, there were also many rumors going around that she was a bully to children and would hurt small animals. In reality, Jane loved all animals, and even dreamed of becoming a veterinarian someday. She enjoyed taking care of her own animals, which consisted of two dogs, two cats, a turtle, a snake, and various others. Neighbors later quashed those rumors, saying they had never seen Jane hurting animals or children. She was never a violent person. I mean, never beat up on the kids in the neighborhood or anything. Always uh, very loving and caring. And then all of a sudden, she does something like this. It's hard to understand. Jane was classified as a tomboy and would wear boyish clothes. Once she reached high school, she went to Patrick Henry High School, where her dad would drive her to school every morning. After the divorce, she was ordered to live with her dad. Jane's relationship with her mother began to fade. Jane and her father, who was also described as being a loner and an odd man, had an okay relationship. They would go hunting together often, as they were both hunting enthusiasts. Jane didn't have much, if any, of a social life. Family members can only remember her having just two friends that she would talk about or spend any time with. There was also a neighbor that Jane would hang out with, a boy who others said was bad news and not a very good influence on Jane. She 
was very active and um, she was uh, always happy and uh, a good, good child, well behaved, never had any problems in school. Police called the shooting incident that took place on January 29, 1979, as an open and shut case. Because of this, the police investigators did little actual investigating. They had the shooter, who confessed that she had done the shooting. So what more did the police need to look for? Unfortunately, this resulted in the case having very little physical evidence. For instance, the police wrote in the report that Jane had shot 36 shots, as that was the number of shell casings they had found. Witnesses, however, said that there were many, many more shots fired, but the officers had no way to look into the case any further. They had walked through Jane's house, took a few pictures, and considered the case closed. Jane has always been adamant that she was high on PCP-laced marijuana and alcohol at the time of the shooting, but blood tests proved that there wasn't anything in her system. Jane claimed that she didn't even really remember the shooting, and that what she could remember, she was hallucinating. I remember looking out and, and seeing like commando types sneaking up on the house and stuff and I don't remember actually going in and getting the rifle and loading it up but I remember seeing them and being real scared and terrified you know they're coming to get me or, and I have to protect myself and stuff and I know somewhere in there I did go and get the, the rifle. There was a pint of Southern Comfort whiskey located next to where Jane was shooting. Since there wasn't any alcohol in her system, it was a mystery who this alcohol belonged to. Jane's father was a recovering alcoholic and told investigators that he never kept alcohol in his home. While Jane's older brother technically still lived with her and their father, he was very rarely ever home and denied that the alcohol was his. Her older sister had moved out before the shooting took place. Perhaps if the police had conducted a more thorough investigation, they may have figured out who the whiskey belonged to. On the Saturday before the shooting, Jane had met up with a friend. This was the boy who used to live next door to Jane, the one everyone said was a bad influence on her. The only two times that Jane had gotten in trouble with the law before the shooting had been for shoplifting and breaking into the school. Both incidents occurred when Jane was with this boy. When Jane had met up with her old neighbor on January 27, 1979, she told him that something big was going to happen on Monday. Though she didn't go into any detail, we can only assume that the something big was the deadly shooting. One year before the shooting, Jane had told her parents that she was having thoughts about killing herself. They were able to get her an appointment with a psychiatrist to have her professionally evaluated. The psychiatrist concluded that Jane should be hospitalized because she was a danger to herself as well as others. Jane's father refused to hospitalize her. While she had dreams of one day being a sniper and had always fantasized about killing a police officer, her father didn't see the need for her to get professional help. After Jane was arrested, she was taken to a juvenile detention center because she was only 16 years old and was still classified as a juvenile. Shortly after she was arrested, a bond hearing in juvenile court was held for Jane. She was appointed a defense attorney. Robert Butler was her first appointed attorney, but he later withdraws as attorney because Jane simply refused to talk to him. The juvenile court judge denied bond for Jane in order that she must remain in the juvenile detention center while she awaited trial. The entire time she was at the center, she carried over the same silence that she gave her attorney, refusing to talk to any of the center employees. 
She also refused to befriend anyone at the center. We will be right back after this short message. Big Mac, Chicken McNuggets, no, Big Mac and Quarter Pounder with cheese, or filet fish You'd be doing the same thing if you were at McDonald's, because you can choose not just one, but two of your favorites for just six bucks. Tasty Big Mac, Crispy 10-Piece Chicken McNuggets, Juicy Quarter Pounder with cheese, or Savory filet fish Enjoy two of your all-time favorites for just six bucks, if you can decide on the two. Prices and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal, single item at regular price. The day after Jane was arrested, the prosecutor handling the case, Charles Patrick, asked that she be tried as an adult in adult court rather than in juvenile court. If she would be tried as a juvenile and found guilty, she would spend the next seven years in the juvenile detention center and be released out into the public at 23 years old. As tried as an adult, she was faced with life in prison. Since she was just 16 years old, she was not able to be sentenced to the death penalty. The community had even signed a petition to have Jane tried as an adult. Unfortunately, the judicial system doesn't work that way. Prosecutor Patrick had to have a hearing in front of the juvenile court judge and prove to the judge that there were enough facts to prove that she should be charged as an adult. Since Attorney Butler had withdrawn from the case, Defense Attorney Michael McGlynn was the next attorney appointed to represent Jane. After a 90-minute hearing, the judge ruled that she should be tried as an adult. The case then was moved to adult court. Psychiatrists that treated the juvenile reported that Jane was very sick and a very disturbed individual. She had shown characteristics of having severe schizoid and severe psychopathic disorder. The psychiatrist recommended that Jane be placed in a setting that was age-appropriate for her. Because of her physical size and stature, she would be a target for both sexual and physical abuse if she were sentenced to an adult prison. A few years before the shooting, Jane was in a bicycle accident where she had hit a metal pole head-on. Doctors would later say that this incident caused Jane to have a front-lobe epilepsy because her brain waves were grossly abnormal. Prosecutor Patrick offered a plea deal to Attorney McGlynn, where Jane could plead to two counts of murder. Attorney McGlynn talked his client into taking the deal because if they were to go to trial and lose, she would be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. At least if she took this plea offer, she would be given the chance to apply for parole eventually. She took the plea deal and was sentenced to two terms of 25 years to life with the possibility of parole. The two terms would run concurrently, which means they are served at the same time. Jane was then lodged at the California Institute for Women, where she remains lodged to this day. Looking back at her case, there are a lot of things Jane has said she would do differently if given the chance. She still claims that she was hallucinating on the day of the shooting, and she wished that the police would have investigated her drug results more thoroughly. She also claimed that she doesn't remember telling the reporter that she did the shooting because she didn't like Mondays. Jane has stated that she thinks about the victims. She hopes they are doing okay. It's real because I did it, you know, and... I take responsibility for doing, you know, the crime itself. Um, I remember up to a certain point, clearly, and that was, I guess, when the drugs started to kick in, because all that morning I had been drinking and uh, taking the pills with the, the, the whiskey and stuff. Past a certain point, it, it just all kind of phases out. 
1993, Jane had her first parole hearing. In this hearing, she didn't take responsibility for her crimes, which is the number one thing the parole board looks at when an inmate is up for parole. She was in denial that she had killed innocent lives and blamed the deaths of Mike Suchar and Burton Rag on police fire. She further tried to explain to the parole board that the prison was giving her mind-altering drugs. Her parole was denied. In 1996, she was up for parole for the second time. She would later withdraw her parole request, so no hearing took place. Have a normal life. You know, I came in really, really young, so I don't really know what it's like out there, you know, dealing with the world as an adult. And I'd like to go to school and get a job and possibly work with some kids or in, in a program or something. In 2001, Jane was up for parole a third time. At this hearing, she did take more responsibility for her crimes. She told the parole board that she felt every school shooting could be her fault if the shooter got the idea from her. She then claimed that she was suicidal, and the only reason for the shootings was because she wanted to be killed by a police officer, also known as suicide by cop. In 2005, Jane had her fourth parole hearing. She stated that she was starting to remember bits and pieces of the shooting. Jane also dropped a bombshell on the parole board and stated that her father had been both physically and sexually assaultive towards her. This caused the police to open up an investigation, which proved none of what Jane was claiming to be true. Well, it's not true. No, well, that never happened, you know. I would take a lie detector on that. I never did anything like that. Jane had her fifth parole hearing in 2009 and her sixth hearing in 2019. Both of those requests were denied. I'm very deeply sorry I did it. I didn't have a right to do that to those people. In one of her parole hearings, she remarked that she would like to drive a forklift once she gets out of prison. Do you think you're going to have trouble finding employment when you leave? No, I don't. Why not? Because I have marketable skills. What kind of skills do you have? What would you like to do upon release? I'd like to drive the forklift. You'd like to drive the forklift, what you're doing right now? Yes. Jane's seventh parole hearing will be in September of 2021. Jane will be 59 years old. Jane's dad passed away in 2016, but not before he married Jane's 17-year-old cellmate. They lived together in the house where Jane committed the shooting, and they actually went on to have a child together, a daughter. It was in the time when the court system was swaying back and forth, and uh, he got the two older ones to say that they, he, they wanted to stay with him. And then so they didn't want to split up the three, so he naturally got uh, Brenda. And so they got married and uh, uh, had a daughter. And shortly after that, uh, Sheila left and left the daughter. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Active Shooter, the podcast. Remember, if you see something, say something. There's no telling how many lives you may be saving. I realize that nothing I do and no amount of time will bring Mr. Rag or Mr. Suker back. And it won't erase the... Um, the fear and stuff that I've given to those kids, Mr. Rob. I just want them to know that I, 
I'm very sorry. And I don't know how to make it up to them. But I try every day to make myself a better person so that because I don't want anything this horrible to ever happen again. Also, make sure to check us out on social media. We have a newly formed discussion group on Facebook. Just search for Active Shooter, the podcast discussion group. You can also find us on Instagram at Active, the podcast, and Twitter at Podcast Active. And for just a dollar a month, you can get access to ad-free episodes, early release episodes, when available, and a shout-out on the show. Just go to www.patreon.com slash active the podcast. Hey, I'm Stan. And I'm Drew. And we are your hosts of Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks is a fresh take on true crime podcast. We are a father and son team from way back in the sticks of South Carolina. Yeah, in a town of less than 500. And we have a shared passion for all things true crime. So, every Saturday, we get together and swap stories about a true crime event. We try and find the most twisted and vile losers of our human race. Now, you won't hear a lot of endless banner on Bad and Boondocks. But what you will hear is all the unedited facts on the cases we choose, no matter how gory or troublesome they are. And you'll hear it all with a unique southern flair. And along the way... You'll hear just the right amount of discussion and jokes to keep you and us from completely losing your mind. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms like iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Himalaya, and CastBox. Or just go to badintheboondocks.com and download all of our episodes there. So, come on down to the boondocks and get your redneck on with us. We promise, you'll have a good time. Norway reeling from twin attacks. First, a suspected car bomb. Quick was known as Sweden's worst serial killer. Quick was convicted. Kim Vahl disappeared after boarding Madsen submarine in Copenhagen Harbor last August. Terrorism, miscarriages of justice, serial killers, disappearances. From the known to the lesser known, we give you true crime from the dark and frozen regions of Northern Europe. This is Nordic True Crime. Subscribe to our bi-weekly episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or on your podcast provider. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Nordic True Crime. Sources for today's episode are Does Anyone Like Mondays by Eric D. Hart, Tom Leonard from the SA Weekend, Lee Egan from CrimeOnline.com, Pauline Repard from the San Diego Union Tribune, Magda from the Vintage News, Katie Serena from AllThingsInteresting.com, Delaney R. Bartlett from Medium.com, Debbie White from the Scottish Sun, Matt Reinman from Timeline. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. Ace is the only national retailer that carries Benjamin Moore paint, which means the paint you trust and a huge selection of colors are right in your neighborhood. And this Saturday only, you can pick up a free sample of Benjamin Moore at your local Ace. 
It's a great way to explore quality colors and find the perfect one for your place. So if you're looking for award-winning service and a new look for your home, look no further than Benjamin Moore Paint at Ace. Offer valid August 1st for Ace Rewards members. Limit one at participating stores while supplies last. Tom Gorman from the Los Angeles Times.